guys are very, very quiet today. It's 4th of July. Make some noise. Hey, it's great to, uh, to have you guys all here. Who doesn't love Family Worship Sunday? Amen? Such a blessing. I love to see the kids involved with the youth team leading and the elementary kids back here participating. And um, today's kind of a bittersweet day before we get started. Um, because we're saying goodbye to uh, a dear family today, uh, the Prue family, who's going to raise their hands for us. They, uh, they've been with us for just a couple years, but in just that short time, they have made such a big impact on uh, our church body, just jumping in with, uh, with both feet, or I guess there's a lot of more feet in the Prue family, right, more than two. But uh, Justin and his wife, Christina, uh, led a life group at their house just almost immediately. And then, of course, their four boys, uh, Tobias, the tall one who often opens the service and is the only one I've ever heard pray that the message would be long. So we're really going to miss him. So that's Tobias. Kiernan was the one just shredding on electric guitar this morning during worship. And then Isaiah and Malachi uh, did our reading today. Uh, but just a neat family, we're going to miss them, but the Lord has uh, apparently called them to Tennessee because Tennessee doesn't have enough Christians, so we actually, the Lord is now exporting Christians from California. California has become a big exporter of Christians <laughs> recently. So we see God's plan, he's going to actually uh, revitalize the Bible Belt by importing Christians from California to do that. So we're going to miss them and uh, we'll pray for them. They're going to hang out for, they are actually driving away tomorrow. I think there perhaps is some significance to driving out of California on Independence Day, but they're going to be loading their truck this afternoon, driving away tomorrow, but I think they're staying to have some hot dogs with us at the feast. So uh, make sure you uh, give them a hug and bless them uh, on their way. And uh, anyway, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless the Prue family and to bless our time uh, in the word today. So Father, we do thank you so much, Lord, for this church family. We thank you for all of those believers, Lord, that you bring in. Lord, we, we even thank you for the ones that you bring out, Lord. We pray that you would bless the Prue family as they go. Lord, though we are so sorry to lose them, we know that they will be such an incredible blessing to whatever church fellowship that they end up being a part of. We pray your continued hand of anointing and blessing upon them and uh, their new endeavors out there. And um, Father, we thank you for them. Give them safe travels, we pray. And Lord, we, we pray for today, Lord, that it would be a, a neat opportunity for us to encourage them before they leave, Lord. And we, we pray now, Lord, as we go to your word, that you would um, just continue to minister to our hearts, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are starting off in a brand new book, and it's what I, oh, I'm getting the nod. So kids, you guys are dismissed. Elementary kids are dismissed, and youth group, bless your hearts, you are in with us today. It's actually a good day for you guys to be here. This is a great, a great text, but we're starting off in what I believe is one of the most powerful letters of all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, and it's the little letter of Colossians. So it's about midway, uh, you know, in the middle kind of of the New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So girls eat potato chips. That's how you remember the order. So Colossians, it's the letter to the Colossians or to the church in the city of Colossae. And it, this is, like I said, it's a powerful little letter. And interestingly enough, it's a, a letter that's really, I think, fairly neglected within the church, primarily because I think in, in certain places it is very similar to Paul's longer letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to see as we go through that it covers much the same ground as Paul does in that longer letter. Some passages, as we will see, are so similar, they are sort of word for word sort of similar. And I think that some people just think, well, you know, I'm just going to read Ephesians because it's longer and it'll cover everything plus some. 
But what I think that maybe what people fail to remember or they don't recognize about this letter is that there is a very unique aspect to the letter to the Colossians. Uh, it's a, a unique aspect that really isn't found in any of the other epistles of the New Testament, at least not to this degree and in this level of detail. And there are some very specific themes and some pressing issues that Paul really writes to combat. And interestingly enough, of course, they are precisely the same themes and they are the same really pressing issues that we're facing. And they are things that are actually palpably shifting our entire culture today as the culture really embraces these things in a pretty alarming way. In, in a word, simply, it's philosophy. Now, when I say philosophy, I don't necessarily mean all kinds of philosophy, right? Because philosophy at its core isn't inherently bad, right? It's, philosophy is simply a structured system of thought about a certain subject. It's just the way that we look at any given thing. You can have a, a philosophy of education or a philosophy of parenting. Every church has its own kind of philosophy of ministry. So there are some good philosophies, and in fact, it was C.S. Lewis that once said that there needs to be good philosophy if for no other reason than to combat bad philosophy. And there is some very bad philosophy out there, especially as we start to enter into that arena of human ideas and human theories and human thought systems that are contrary to the word of God and especially contrary to the word of God as they try to offer us these explanations to these really kind of existential questions that can only be answered by God. And so philosophy tries, and yet they have no answers to provide. In fact, one of the greatest known of all the human philosophers, it was Socrates that once said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. And so the book of Colossians, really, in a unique way, it brings us back to God's philosophy for our lives. And what we'll see is that at the very center of that philosophy is the Lord Jesus and the gospel itself, that the good news of who he is, what he's done, that good news of his redeeming work on our behalf. And I think I mentioned in the e-bulletin this week, for all of you I know that, that read it, that the book of Colossians is really, it's the most Christ-centered of all of the Apostle Paul's letters. And in it, he really exalts you know, Jesus over everything in a very unique and a powerful way. And he, we're going to see in these beautiful passages, he just describes Jesus with some of the loftiest and the most beautiful language, the most powerful language, I think, in all of the New Testament. And all of it just really focused in on Jesus' supremacy and his sufficiency, and yet on the beautiful simplicity of the gospel message itself. Because it's that message that cuts right straight through all of those things, right straight through all of those philosophies that are constantly trying to exalt themselves above his place in our lives and really his place right there at the center of our redemption story. And so the book of Colossians gives us some really good news about our lives and good news that we can then offer to others about their lives. So this is a, a powerful little letter with some really good news. I'm so excited about this study, so let's just jump right to it. It starts out the way that most all Paul's letters start out. Here at the beginning of verse 1, we're going to see him first identify himself as the author. He simply says in verse 1 of Colossians 1, he says, Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Now, 13 of the 21 epistles or letters in the New Testament begin just like this with the name Paul. And another one of the letters, the letter to the Hebrews, many believe, including me, was written probably by Paul as well. Now, Paul, of course, we saw as we studied through the book of Acts, was the great apostle to the Gentiles. 
He was called, he was commissioned by Jesus himself, remember there on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, to take the message of the gospel beyond the Jews out to the Greeks, right? Really out to the entire pagan world. So in any of these 13 different letters, when you see Paul add his official title after his name, when he says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, typically that means that there is some sort of a doctrinal problem, or maybe it's a, a practical problem that has grown out of a doctrinal problem. But there's some problem there within the church that has come to Paul's attention, and so he's writing to that church now, coming to them kind of with this mantle as an apostle. Right, this is his authority from God to correct those problems in the church. These are his credentials. And we know that the Apostle Paul was a man even before his radical encounter with Jesus and before his conversion to faith in Jesus, he had an extremely impressive resume. He was really a rising star within Judaism. Remember he wrote to the Philippians that he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, he was persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he said he was blameless. In the book of Acts, he tells us again that he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. This was the most respected of all the Jewish rabbis and teachers at that time. It says he was taught according to the strictness of our father's law and he was zealous towards God. So if you were looking for an impressive list of qualifications, Paul had them. He was like double PhD, scholar, fellow in residence kind of level. And yet then he tells the Philippians this, he says, but what things were gained to me, right? All of these things that I had accomplished, he says, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. So all of that was rubbish, right? It was garbage to Paul at this point. The only thing that mattered to him was that he had been counted worthy and had been put into the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. Because, you know, our relationship with Jesus is an absolute game changer in every aspect of our lives, right? It provides us with new passions. It gives us an entirely new purpose, a new focus, new values, a new identity. So rather than rely on any of those other qualifications, Paul simply says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And those were all the credentials that Paul possibly needed. As he writes this letter, probably around 63 AD, we see he's together there with his younger protege, his assistant named Timothy, who was there at this time ministering to Paul as he was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting his trial before the Roman emperor. So you have Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, and generally those are called the prison epistles because they were written you guessed it, by Paul from prison. Now, when they talk about Paul being in prison, don't think about like a deep, dark dungeon kind of prison, but this was more kind of a house arrest sort of a situation, and yet it was a situation where Paul wasn't free to travel and to minister in person and to share with the church. And we read these four letters and we think about the wonderful, life-giving truths that are contained in them. Some of the most central truths of our faith and about the church. And so we just see the way that God had to slow this man down, right? And really provided him with this time and with this space and with this place so that he could pen these letters and as you read them, you just, it's almost like, he, you know, he's contained, his freedom has been curtailed, and yet you see the way this beautiful truth just pours out so freely from his heart. And so here he is, Paul, together with Timothy, Timothy he writes this letter, it says in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Now, Colossae might 
not sound like a very familiar city from our study of Paul's ministry and his missionary journeys again back in the book of Acts. And it's okay. You didn't forget that whole chapter on Paul's ministry there because Paul actually never even visited there. And why would he? Right? Colossae was a small kind of city right there in that region of, of what is modern-day Turkey, but it was a pretty insignificant city in the ancient world at that time, and yet it was just 20 miles away from the very significant city of Ephesus. Ephesus, of course, the chief kind of city in the province of Asia, it was a city in which Paul did spend a couple of years, and from which we can assume this church then was planted here in Colossae. Very likely, we're going to see by a man by the name of Epaphras, who was from Colossae. He may have been visiting uh, Ephesus, heard Paul teach, gave his own life to Christ there, and then brought the gospel back to Colossae. So if Colossae was known for anything, it might have been known for this kind of a dye that they produced for fabrics there. And yet, it, it, it's easy, it's, it's right to say that it was surely both the smallest and the least important city that Paul ever wrote to. And yet, what we know is that for such a small city, they had a very big problem. So this was a small church in a small city with a big problem. And it was a big enough problem with everything else on his mind that apparently the Apostle Paul thought that the situation there in Colossae, as reported to him during this visit to Rome by Epaphras, that this situation was important enough that Paul really turned all of his apostolic attention on it. And we're going to see as he writes that it absolutely was. Because the problem there in Colossae was what became known as the Colossian heresy. And we're going to, of course, see more and more about that as we read what Paul wrote. But in essence, it was this very weird blending of a philosophy that was creeping its way into the church. It was a corruption of Christianity by mixing all of these different elements. You had these elements of mystical Judaism. You had these other elements of very legalistic Judaism, and all of them sort of combined together with the early form of what's called Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism was a philosophical heresy that emerged during the first century. We could talk for weeks and weeks on Sunday mornings all about the Gnostic teachings and still honestly not have any idea what they were talking about. But one of the things that it was clear that they did not believe, they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he was God. They didn't believe that he was divine in the way that the Bible clearly teaches that he was in the way that we believe him to be. Because for them, for them to believe that Jesus could somehow be all God and all man all the time at the very same time, that was just intellectually, it was philosophically a big problem for them because they just couldn't wrap their finite minds around this infinite God who had come to earth to redeem his creation. And can I just say as a quick aside here that worshiping your mind is a terrible way to waste your mind. Because the truth of the matter is that God is always going to be bigger than our minds. That's why he's God and we're not. And so they rejected this sound teachings simply because they couldn't understand it. And part of the reason they couldn't understand it is that they had this belief that everything material, right, the entire physical world, anything that you could touch was somehow inherently evil. And so the question was, how could a holy deity inhabit an evil body? That was kind of their thinking. And this belief led to some very strange practices. Some of them believed that they had to restrain, right, to keep down the evil of their material bodies through self-beatings and self-denial, right, a form of early asceticism, right, while the other camp within Gnosticism, that whole approach didn't sound very good to them. So they reasoned that since all matter is evil and therefore the flesh itself is evil, why fight it? 
And so they just completely gave themselves over fully to every evil appetite and every sinful desire. And they just said, you know what, we're just going to let our bodies engage in all of this evil while we keep the spiritual side inside of us pure. So they had developed this wonderful way to really compartmentalize their lives so that they could live in these entirely two different ways. And it's not unlike, of course, the Christian who claims to be a believer, but gives themselves this, this license to continue to engage in whatever kind of fleshly practices they want, because they just keep their religion, what, deep on the inside. And there's no call to holiness or a call to wholeness of who they are. And as I said, we're going to learn so much more about the Gnostics and what they taught. But the point is this, that it's not just that the false teaching was the big problem. It's that these Christians at Colossae, they were trying to blend all of these things with the truths of the gospel. They were trying to integrate them all and somehow allow them to all coexist together to coexist together as a sort of a more spiritual and a more enlightened approach to the faith. What the Gnostics sold themselves and they claimed to have was a secret knowledge. They claimed to have a deeper knowledge, a much deeper knowledge than you could just find in Paul's brand of the Christian faith. And so they were drawing believers away from the simplicity of Jesus and into these complicated, super confusing kinds of philosophies that really, as we just heard, were nonsensical at best. And so this was the religious environment of the first century there in Colossae. And does it sound familiar at all to you? Well, of course it does, because it perfectly parallels so much of what we see today in culture, right? It was the time of this philosophical mixing and of coexisting of people borrowing a little bit from this religion over here and a little bit from that philosophy over there. And then, you know, until they've kind of cultivated what I sort of like to call a roll your own God, right? This God of your own understanding that you can worship very comfortably as you really are continuing just to worship yourself and your own intellect and your own pleasures. So it's what's called today syncretism because you're kind of synchronizing all of these different things together. And the only difference between what was happening in the first century is that in the first century you had to go off and kind of join a group who was doing the borrowing, but today in our culture and with all of our modern technology, well, you can do all the borrowing all by yourself, right? With just the click of a mouse or the tap on the trackpad, and then with all of the amplification, right? And all of the platforming of all of these different mixed up kind of philosophies that you see on social media and YouTube gives these things a voice. And what you have is now a situation where our culture is very quickly careening from the truth of God's word straight off the cliff into chaos and confusion. Right, because truth has become completely relative. Words don't mean what they once used to mean. And to simply disagree with someone now is characterized as hate toward them. And we're seeing the effects of all of this all around us. You see people scrambling in a panic to make sure they're always on the right side of the issue. Whatever the issue is today, right, it's like a, it's like a big game of social musical chairs. Right, where you're just living in fear of this social censure, drowning in a sea of uncertainty and anxiety, just panicked that at some point the music is going to stop and you're going to be the only one left without a seat. And yet, this is this moment. Right? This is this cultural moment into which the Lord has placed every one of us. He has placed us here in this moment and he has armed us with the gospel, right? He's armed us with the good news regarding our origin and our purpose and regarding reconciliation and redemption and truth and forgiveness and regarding him and the healing love that he has. And he's armed us with all of this 
so that we can extend to the culture around us the very same thing here that Paul extends to the Colossians, right? To this church that's struggling there corporately, right? He extends it, look at, he says there, to the saints, to every member of that local body, to every precious soul that had already put their faith in the Lord for their salvation. And now by the presence and the power of the Spirit, they had been set apart for God's use. That really is most simply what the word saint means. It means the set apart or the called out. And it refers to each and every one of us who are here, who are believers this morning. Right, just here in this room, you know, St. Jason and St. Sumiko and St. Omar and yes, even St. Brett, right? It's not just some set of sort of elevated super Christians that are somehow revered by some big religious system, right? But Paul writes to all of them, he writes to all of us, anyone who might be struggling with what to believe and who to believe, and he writes to them and he extends to them, look what it says at the end of verse two, he extends to them grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've certainly seen this greeting before. This is kind of the customary greeting of Paul in most of his writings. But just imagine the way. Imagine the way in the context of all that was going on in their world. Imagine the way that these words and this blessing would have been received by them as coming from him. Grace and peace. Grace was the common greeting of the Roman world. Peace, shalom. Of course, the common greeting of the Jews, but the Holy Spirit here combines them for us. And then, notice there in the text, he tells us where they both have their source. The Spirit tells us exclusively that they come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And they always come in that order in Paul's letters, grace then peace, because they always come in that order in our lives. You cannot know the peace of God. You cannot be at peace with God apart from the grace of God, apart from that unmerited and undeserved favor toward you, right? To the Ephesians, Paul would write that it was by grace you've been saved through faith and not of works, right? Not based on anything you did, lest anyone should boast. And it's absolutely true, not just theologically and biblically, but also it's so true, isn't it, experientially and relationally. There, there is no peace in any kind of a relationship with God if I believe that that relationship is built on anything less than the grace of God, because I'm going to fail in my part of this relationship each and every day. So I would never get out from kind of the condemnation of my own shortcomings. And it's not like we wake up in the morning saying, okay, you know what, I'm gonna really go out and charge into sin today. And yet it's just, you know, we get partway through the morning, maybe we don't even get out of the house and we're saying, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Or, oh, I wish I could do that a little bit differently. And then to realize in that moment that God comes in and he says, you know what? I've got grace for that. I've got grace to cover that. And it's because of that that this relationship with him isn't on and off and on and off and on and off again on the basis of my performance, but our relationship with him is on, and then it's on, and it's on, and it's always on, and it doesn't break because it's based purely on his grace. And God knew that it would have to be that way. Unmerited favor, that's how God deals with us. And because of that, I have peace. Because of that, we have this peace that when we're up or when we're down or when we think we're doing great or when we know that we're doing not, we're not. We know that that relationship hasn't changed at all because the relationship never depended on us at all. It always depended on his grace and it depended on the sacrifice of Jesus. And when we stop and we think about that grace, 
And we think about this kind of a peace that we enjoy with God based on the grace of God. And then we look around. We look around at those people that we work with or that we go to school with, maybe even that we live with, those people who are outside of Christ and don't know that peace. They haven't experienced that grace. And we look at them and it simply breaks our hearts. It breaks our hearts to continue to watch them struggle so much, exhausted and anxious and angry, and the way that they strike out so often at one another, almost like a like a wounded animal that's somehow backed into a corner. And yet here we have the answer. Right? We have the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That's that truth that lifts us up out of that confusion. And we are so thankful. Thankful not just to have it, but to be able to share it as well. And that's precisely, I think, what the Apostle Paul says next. And what he says next, it's one of these beautiful kind of six-verse-long kind of sentences of the Apostle Paul. Because he just can't stop himself and his heart from the way it's overflowing. And so it's like he just keeps adding commas, right, and and adding on to it. Look at verses 3 through 8. We're going to read them all together as he writes to the Colossians about the Colossians, really thanking the Lord for what the gospel had done in that church. He says in verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned from Epaphras our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Wow. Like, who wouldn't want that kind of sentence to be written about them by Paul? And so Paul says about these saints, he says he's thankful for three things. First of all, in verse 4, he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Then also in verse 4, he says, we heard about the love that you have for each other, right? The love for all the saints. And then finally in verse 5, he says, we've heard about your hope that is set in heaven. And boy, these are the things that we would long for people to hear about us, aren't they? that they would hear about our faith, that they'd hear about our love, that they'd hear about our hope, and that they would hear about this security that we have in heaven. The sense of the word hope there, it's more so a confident expectation. So it's not a hope so, it's a no so. That we have this incredible hope, a hope that's not rooted in this world, a hope that's not rooted in this culture. It's not rooted in a political system based on who's in power at this present moment. It's not rooted in what man is ultimately going to be able to do or not going to be able to do. But we have this certain hope and this confident hope because it's rooted in Jesus Christ. It's rooted in Jesus Christ who gave his life for us and who's going to return for us. And he's going to come and establish God's kingdom here on earth with us. And all of this came to them as a result of the gospel and the implications that that has on each of our lives. Notice again, Paul prays this for all the saints. Right? He's writing this and he's expressing his profound thanks for these people and he doesn't even know any of them. Probably not a single one of them. He's never ever been to Colossae. He's certainly never been to a service at their church. But he's so thankful for this church because he knew what it was that God had done in their lives. So thankful, even, be, even for those who were trying to mix these philosophies all up with their faith. And he's thankful because he knows that all of these things are theirs in Jesus because they are all a part of the gospel of Jesus. That simple message of forgiveness from God and reconciliation with God, all available to us because of the sacrificial death on the cross. 
In the Romans, Paul says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So anyone, right, who's ever put their faith in the Lord, this incredible kind of miracle has occurred in our lives, right? It's the greatest miracle that can occur in any human life. It's nothing less than a spiritual birth, right? We are a completely new creation than ever existed before. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness and into light. We now have this everlasting kind of abundant life and we have this capacity now to enjoy this personal relationship with God. And Paul knew that it was the gospel that had produced this in each and every one of their lives, the word of the truth of the gospel. And he's reminding them of all of these things they had because of those truths, because of the things that they'd received when Epaphras first declared that good news to them. And Paul says, this is starting to bear this beautiful fruit in your lives, just as it is bearing beautiful fruit in the lives of everyone, everywhere that it touches. So this good news that these false teachers were really calling into question had been changing lives all over the known world as a witness and as a testimony to its effective power. And we've asked this question before, but what other explanation could there possibly be for some of our lives here in this room this morning? Or maybe for those of you who are listening online, what other explanation could there be for all that's happened except for the truthfulness of this gospel? except for the truth of the reality that God himself changes lives, that God really does come into our lives and he makes us into something different. And Paul says, that's the explanation. It's the gospel. Right? What, what life did the Gnostics ever change? What love does the Gnostic gospel produce within a life? Or what truth do they bring with them? What hope does their philosophy possibly produce? And Paul points all of these things out here just in the greeting. And in essence, he's even starting now, he says, look, don't move from the gospel. Don't move from the gospel that changed your life. He says the Gnostics, they're late to the party and they didn't even bring a gift. Right? Don't leave what you know to be true experientially for this thing that they're telling you theoretically, right? And, and it brings in these things that are contrary to what has changed your life. He basically says, just keep going with what you know. Go with what you know, those things that Epaphras has already taught you. So here's this beautiful work God is doing there in Colossae, these lives being changed, this faith that's growing steadily, this love that's flowing freely, this hope that's fueling things so powerfully, the fruit that's coming out of their lives as the spirit is moving among them. It's tremendous and it's dynamic what God was doing there in Colossae and in come these false teachers and they're trying to steal it away. And they're trying to draw these people away into these bad philosophies that create confusion. So here's Paul after this visit from Epaphras, right? He's there in Rome. He gets this report of these things that are happening in Colossae. And so look what he writes next at the beginning of verse 9. He says, for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Right, so, so thankful was Paul for them, but so concerned was he about them that it drove him right to his knees in this earnest, unceasing prayer. And that's what we have in the next few verses, verses 9 through 11. It's Paul's prayer for that church. And it's his prayer for what the gospel would do through that church. And you guys know who studied the Bible, throughout Paul's letters, we have these beautiful prayers of Paul that he prays for us as believers. Some are longer, some are shorter, but the thing about these prayers that we always need to keep in mind is that these are Holy Spirit-inspired prayers, every word of them. Just like anything else and everything else that's written in the pages of the scriptures, these prayers are nothing less than the inspired word of God. And so we need to not only understand them as Paul's heart for us, but more importantly, we need to understand them as the Lord's heart for us as well. 
these things that Paul prays, these are the things that God himself would have us to pray for, for ourselves. And take note of this, because when the Lord is effectively giving the answer key to us in the middle of the test, these are things we want to pay special attention to. And this prayer in particular, I think, this Colossian prayer, I think this prayer really demands our attention on two different levels. Because it speaks to us not only as individual believers, right, individually, but it also speaks to us as the church, big C, corporately. Because this prayer is a very powerful and a timely reminder of what God intends for the church to be in the world. And listen, we, we are living in a time and a moment in human history when the church really does need to be what God intended us to be. Right, we're living in a time of desperation, a time of confusion, a time where people are wondering about all kinds of things and they're looking for answers to just about everything. I mean, think about just the last few years. Right, we've gone from a country that was already so deeply divided ideologically and politically and then all of a sudden we're navigating some kind of a worldwide virus. Right, and we're just trying to make our way through all of that in an absolutely unprecedented way. And you think about the fear and the challenges and the difficulties. Not to mention the arrows in the supermarket. You couldn't even walk any way you wanted to walk, right? And then just when it looked like things were maybe starting to turn with the pandemic, all of a sudden we had this thing happen here in our country with that tragic death of George Floyd. And you think about the hurt and the pain that that unleashed and the protests and the riots and the looting and all of that rage that was just bubbling over. And we never recovered from that and now we add to that this struggling global economy and this worldwide supply chain disruptions and this significant inflation and this increasingly divided population and people are so overwhelmed that they are starting to truly lose hope and they're frightened. And they're wondering what's going on and what's the answer and what's the solution? How do we solve these kinds of problems and how do we deal with this kind of a fear that's building? And the point is that this is a time where people in their utter desperation and in their exhaustion, they are looking for answers and they are looking for hope. And we know that it's the church that has the answer. It's the church that has the hope because the answer and the hope are in the gospel. The fear of death, the answer to the fear of death is in the gospel. The answer to racism is in the gospel. The answer to anarchy and confusion and for division and for ideology, all of those answers are in the gospel. And so how do we as believers, right? how do we as the church really shine brightly at this time to be everything that God intends us to be. Well, if the things that Paul is about to pray for, if these things would become a reality in our midst, then we will be what we need to be at this time and at this moment. So again, he says, let's read it all together. Verse nine, he says, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. So if you've got your Bible, or if you can do it electronically, put a star next to those verses and pray that prayer every single day, first for yourself, then for the church, and then pray it for me, amen? If you're inclined. If you wanna pray, you pray that prayer for anybody because that's a prayer that's hard to beat. 
And notice Paul prays three main things for these believers. First of all, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Can I just say that this, hands down, is the greatest prayer request that people will ask to be prayed for. Followed by usually, you know, prayer for physical healing, but that would be a distant second. Because all of us are constantly coming to these continual kind of crossroads in our life. And we want to know what's God's will for me here and what does God want me to do there because we want to be in his will. We want to please him. We want to be effective for him. I can tell you I've had enough of my will. And it never gets me very far, at least not very far in the right direction. And so what we want to know is what does the Lord have in store for me? And we try to discern that. We pray according to James 5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so we ask, we can be confident he's going to answer. He's going to reveal to us what his plan is for us. And he gives us this unique kind of spiritual understanding, Paul says, about what's really going on around us. He fills us with it. That the, the sense of that word filled there, it's a great word. It has the sense of being loaded and being ready. And it was a word that was used to describe a ship that was ready for a voyage. And so Paul is asking the Lord, hey, Lord, we want you to load us up with wisdom and get us ready for this voyage. And again, how we desperately need this in the church today to be able to look at our lives, to be able to look at the world, and to really start to see it from a spiritual perspective. Really start to look at things through God, the lens of God's will, and most importantly, through the lens of God's word. So spiritual understanding means we're gonna look at things, we're gonna evaluate things, not just the way that they appear, but we want to really look beyond what it is that we can see with the naked eye. We want to look and we want to start to say, Lord, what do you have in this situation? Lord, what is it that you can see that I can't see? I need your help to make a decision. Because so often it can look one way to us and we look at it and we say, okay, I know the issue and I know the answer. But so often that's just based on our initial worldly understanding and at this moment we need so much more than that we need to understand it from a spiritual perspective how each and every decision is going to really impact things in this realm of the spirit we need to see through god's eyes we need to be able to act upon what god sees in these circumstances and how he would have us to respond and that's wisdom You've probably heard it said that wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. You can have all kinds of knowledge, right? The internet is absolutely full of it. And like no other time in history, we can be people whose brains are filled to overflowing with all kinds of information. But if we don't have wisdom, then we don't know how to apply that knowledge. And where does wisdom come from? Well, it comes right there from spiritual understanding. It comes from the Spirit of God and from the Word of God, right? It doesn't come from the Gnostics. It doesn't come from the experts. It doesn't even come from taking a philosophy class. And you see, notice what Paul starts to do here. He's starting to, one of the buzzwords of the Gnostics was, again, that they had this knowledge that they could give. And so Paul says, yes, we need knowledge, but the knowledge that we need is to know how to re the Lord would have us to respond. And we need that for our own lives, and we need it today for the world. Here we are, again, at this very unique moment in history and at this unique moment in culture. And we as the church collectively, right, each of us individually can speak into all of that. We can speak the will and the wisdom of the Lord based on this spiritual understanding that he's given to us. And can I tell you, we are the only ones who can speak those things into this situation, right? None of you would disagree with me. We're in kind of treacherous waters, and it is difficult navigation these days, but we are uniquely set apart 
right, to be able to minister the beauty and the truth and the wisdom of the gospel into that confusion. Look back, look what Paul prays next. Not only that we would walk in wisdom and spiritual understanding, but notice the second thing he prays in verse 10 is that we would also walk worthy of the Lord. Okay, now this one's going to hurt a little bit, but not only do we need to, we, now we need to take all of that wonderful, supernatural, otherworldly, spiritual understanding and wisdom, and we need to translate it into our daily lives. We need to bring heaven to earth through our lives because we're living our lives in a way that looks like him and in a way that's pleasing to him. Not just to please everybody else and not to please our family, not to please our friends, and certainly not just to please ourselves. Okay, that one hurt a little bit, didn't it? But to live our lives in a way that we really live out the pages of the scriptures in a way that really honors him. And Paul promises us that that's going to enable us to be fruitful for him. Do you want to be fruitful for the Lord? Then just start walking in a way that's worthy of him and watch the way that he uses your life and watch the abundant fruit that comes out as a result. And all of it, look back, it all flows out of that knowledge of him, right? That's key, isn't it? And the word knowledge, as we see it here through the book of Colossians, it's a special Greek word, ginosko. And it speaks of an experiential knowledge. So Paul's point is that we need to be growing in our experiential knowledge of God, not just our head knowledge about God but growing as we really start to apply the word of God and the wisdom of God. And then as we start to just do that, then we start to see the fruit from that. And then God moves us on to the next thing and we start to see more fruit from that. And then he moves us on to the next thing and we do the same thing and we see more fruit and so on and so on. And all the time we're building and building and building on that experience of applying all of that spiritual insight, and that's a walk that's worthy of the Lord. Again, think of the church collectively, right? Think of a whole church, right, that's walking worthy of the Lord, or to put it more simply, think of a whole church where Christians are actually behaving like God says that we should behave. Living like we should. Right, a church where we're really behaving like we're really lovers of Jesus and followers of Jesus. And we all know this to be true, that one of the biggest problems in the church today, one of the biggest problems in our evangelizing people is that Christians don't live like Christians. Right? We don't live up to our name. We are supposed to be the children of God. And of course, this is a historical problem. We've just watched it happening all the way through the book of Joshua, right? The, the whole history of the children of Israel. We have all these prophets that would just lament over and over and saying, you know, how God saved his people Israel so that they could be this bright shining light to all the nations. And yet the prophets lament and they effectively say, hey, you guys have become worse than all of these nations around you. Those nations around you, they're not even as bad as you guys are. And sometimes that can be the truth, can't it, about the church. There's a lot of people that have pretty negative attitudes towards Christianity because they have negative attitudes towards Christians. They look and they think, well, you know what? If that's what a Christian looks like, then I don't want to have anything to do with any of that. So this is Paul's point here in praying that we would have this walk that's worthy of the Lord. And we can't fix all the other Christians, but we here in our church family, we can start to walk like a kind of a Christian that those people have never seen before. Christians who are really full of grace and full of truth just like Jesus was, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It says, we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? Full of beauty and full of heaven, just like Jesus was. But here's the thing. We can only do that with God's help. And that's the last thing that Paul's pray for. 
We only have 22 pages left, I promise. We're going to wrap this right up. It's the last thing that Paul prays for, that we would be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. Tune back in because you don't want to miss this part. How much might do we need? Well, look, Paul says we have all of it. We have all of that glorious, godly power. So put this all together. Paul prays that we would know the will of God, that we would know the wisdom of God through the word of God. He prays that it would translate into our daily walk that would be worthy of God, and then that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in order to make all of that happen. You guys, this is the super secret sauce, right? This is what makes our Christian faith different from everything else in the world. It makes it different from all of those other philosophies of the world. It is very easy to sit down and to write up some kind of a list of a moral code and then deliver it to the whole world and demand that people live up to it. But are you going to supply me with the ability to do that? Or are you just simply going to condemn me for my life because I don't? But what Jesus did, he comes in and he lays out this incredible standard for a holy life, the highest standard for a holy life that had ever been laid out. But he doesn't just leave us there because he then gives us the glorious power to live out that life. He gives us, the Bible says, the very same power, the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1. So understand that same power, right, that dunamis, right, dynamite power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he now gives to us by his spirit to raise us from the dead so that we can live out this new life. And that we can live it, what does Paul say next at the end of verse 11? That we're to live out this holy life, this exemplary life, this worthy walk of a life. He says we need to live it out with all patience and long suffering with joy. Now that would take some power. But that's exactly the power that he promises. And for us, we don't need, when things really start to get rough, we don't need to just kind of, you know, white knuckle it or grin and bear it just to get through it. God says, no, I'm going to give you enough power, not just to get you through it. He says, but I want you to look good while you're doing it. Even when it seems like this is unbearable. That's the purpose for the power that Paul is praying for that these believers would be able to keep on walking in a way that was worthy, to keep on walking with the Lord when it's hardest to walk with the Lord. Those times for all of us when everyone seems to be turning against you and when nothing is going right for you. Maybe there's these false teachers that are with their false philosophies and they're all around you and they're coming at you and God says, but I'm going to strengthen you and I'm going to empower you not just to keep on going, but that you would be able to do that with this beautiful kind of a patience and a long-suffering that could only possibly come from me. What's the difference between patience and long-suffering? Well, patience usually deals with our circumstances. Long-suffering instead deals with people, right? That's pretty fitting, isn't it? Because sometimes it's easy we can patiently endure even the most trying circumstances, but we can really start to suffer, right, when we have to be patient with another person. And we have to bear with them for a long time. But Peter tells us that the Lord is long-suffering towards us because of his grace and his love. Paul told the church at Galatia that long-suffering, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? And here's the point again. It's only by the mighty power of the Spirit that we're able to respond to these difficult circumstances and these difficult people and to do it with patience and long-suffering and all the while keeping our joy. But that's how we walk worthy of the Lord. And that's our testimony, isn't it, to an unbelieving world. Understand, 
the Colossians to whom Paul was writing, they were living under the threat of very real and very intense persecution. They had all come to faith in Jesus right out of paganism, and they often paid a high price for their faith. And so Paul prays that they'd have the strength not just to endure, but to endure with this sense of supernatural joy, right? A settled, supernatural sense of joy. Not that we're having joy about our circumstance, but we can have joy about our salvation in the midst of that. And we have all been through a rough time these past few years, right? The whole world has been through a rough time these past few years. And everybody is responding in their different ways. But only we, as Christians, we are equipped and we are empowered by the Spirit with this supernatural capacity to be able to respond even joyfully to all these things that we are having to continue to endure. But what an opportunity for a powerful testimony. As the world is watching and they're wondering at what is the source of this peace and this power and this joy that we have, and then we're able now to speak into that circumstance those gospel words that give life and that bring light into that darkness. And all I can say is that you are lucky that we are more than out of time because you can see that I am pretty passionate about all of this. I want to leave us not just with the what, the what we're supposed to do or the how we're supposed to be able to do it, but I just want to finish up. I'm just going to read three more verses this time that are actually going to be our first three verses that we're going to consider next time because I think they really give us the why that we're able to do what it is that we need to do. Because Paul finishes up this section, he's greeted the church, he's prayed for the church, and he does all of it. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. He does all of it giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So I hope you're looking at your Bibles because look, the possibilities of verses 9 through 11 are made possible because of the realities of verses 12 through 14. See, we can do all of this because we're different, because we've been changed, because we are no longer who we once were, all because of the gospel. And it's that gospel that we celebrate now as we close out our time today with communion. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up if you've never taken communion with us here at Calvary Mountain View, um, our communion is what we might call open communion in the sense that you don't have to be a member here to have communion, which is good because we don't actually have membership, so that would be a pretty short list, but you don't have to be a member here to take communion. If you are a member of the body of Christ, right? if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus and you've given your life to him by faith, then you are welcome to come and to partake in this remembrance of his sacrifice for what he did on our behalf. And as I say every month when we do this, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus and you want to become one, um, we're going to have some people uh, down here that can pray for you. Helen will be over here to pray for you, and Pastor Chris will be over here to pray with you, uh, and they can help to explain to you and to, to lead you and to guide you into what it means to just take that first step towards this new life. And all of these things that Paul prayed for today will be yours if they're not already. So as the team begins to minister, um, the communion elements will be up here, and you're welcome as we start to sing just to come forward and to pick up the elements on your own, and you can take them back to your seat. Uh, and I would really just encourage you, spend some time with the Lord. Paul says we're to examine ourselves, 
before we partake into com in communion and just ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you want me to look at? What are some things that, some business that we need to do in order for my heart to be prepared to really remember this uh, in a worthy way? And then feel free to take the elements, take the communion on your own when you're ready. And we'll just continue to worship the Lord. And when we're done, I'll come back up and we'll, uh, we'll sing a little closing blessing. And then we will head out for some hot dogs and a wonderful 4th of July feast. Amen. I almost asked any questions, but that would, any questions? No, anyway, let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we just, uh, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the incredible encouragement that it gives us, Lord, the way that a text like this so clearly details for us all that it is that you've done on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray as we take communion even now that, Lord, you would truly write these truths afresh on each one of our hearts, Lord, as we remember the death of your Son on the cross. Lord, as we remember his broken body represented by the bread, Lord, his shed blood represented for us by the cup. And as we take those things into ourselves, Lord, we pray that it would be a reminder of the intimacy and the union that we have with you in him. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd bless this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.